This is the Definitely Uncertain podcast, brought to you by Goldrock Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. This is the Definitely Uncertain podcast, and my name is Darren Rockman. I'm a partner at Goldrock Capital a 21-year-old multifamily office servicing families in Israel and around the world. And with me today, once again on the podcast for the second time, backed by popular demand, Abby Weiss. Uh, hi, Abby. Welcome. Hi, Darren. How are you? Great. Great to have you back on the podcast. For those who don't remember from last time, Abby's the president of the Taub Center for Social Policy Studies. He has a degree in uh, economics from the University of Chicago. He has presi presided as a member of the senior faculty at Bar-Ilan University since 1998, and he served as the chair of the economics department there for four years between 2005 and 2008. His expertise is applied uh, economics, and he's one of uh, the smartest thinkers in the area of Israeli economics and public policy. So you know, we're really honored to have him back on the podcast. Um, so yeah, you blush. <laughs> and that's not easy. Um, so... Uh, it, let, let, let's launch into it. Uh, 2021, the Economics Intelligence Unit does a survey and they named Tel Aviv as the most expensive city in the world, which I think was shocking for some, but not for others. Despite this sort of dubious honor, how bad really is the cost of living here in Israel? Well, okay, so let's break that into two parts. Let's start with that, with that quote that you gave before about being the most expensive city. That's just misleading. It's just a, it's just a silly comparison because there was one or the major cause of that is that the shekel is so strong. So say you're paying, let's say, you know, 12,000 shekel a month in, uh, in rent for a really nice apartment. If the shekel is at three, uh, uh, shekel per dollar, that's $4,000. If it's at four shekel per dollar, that's $3,000. But the Israeli who's earning money and living in Tel Aviv, you know, he's spending, he's earning in shekels and he's paying in shekels. He's not paying in dollars. That does not have the effect on him, but it does have an effect on a tourist who wants to come here and will suddenly have to pay higher prices because the shekel is so strong. So at that point, the shekel was at about close to about 3.1 shekel per dollar. And now it's at 3.5. So that's a huge difference. And that will make a big difference in that measure. So from that perspective, it's really not a great comparison because it really mostly fell on that issue. Okay, so With the headline's got to be, the headline's got to be, Tel Aviv was the most expensive city in the world, but is no longer. At a certain point when you measured it. For yeah. about five minutes, exactly. <laughs> but the thing is, that doesn't mean that it's not expensive. Israel is expensive. And if you take a look at, the, at, a look at prices over time, Israel has been expensive since about 2008. If you want, we'll get into what, what happened in 2008, and I'll explain to you why that happened. But uh, since about 2008, Israel has been expensive. With that, again, another caveat, prices in Israel, except for this year, had not gone up since about 2014. And the result is that, and they did go up in Europe, and they did go up in the other OECD countries. And the result of that is that while Israel remains expensive because the gap was very large, it's not as relatively expensive as it was in the past. Okay, so the gap is closing between the cost of living here and the cost of living in places like Europe. And that's the case this year also when in the U.S. you're having over 8% inflation, 
And here you're also having very high inflation relative to what's been happening, but it's only been about 4%. It was about 3%, now it's about 4%. So yeah, those are the numbers. Okay. That said, it is high. And let's go back to 2008. What happened then? How did we get to where we are today? So 2008 was a really big turning point in Israel and in many places. 2000, the end of 2007, the beginning of 2008, I don't know if you remember this or not. You're younger than I am there. Um, <laughs> I'm not that young. <laughs> <laughs> there were sudden stories about emerging economies. And there was a lot of talk about people in China and people in India and people throughout the, the, the Far East suddenly wanting to change their consumption patterns and wanting to consume like they consume in the West. And the result of a lot of that was that there was a panic in international markets. I don't know if you remember the Time magazine, the Newsweek magazine's covers about the emerging uh, markets, but basically- Everybody's going to want to eat steak. Everyone's going to want to eat fish right, and all right. of that. Stuff. And where are we going to get enough McDonald's for everybody? And the, uh, the prices in commodity markets went crazy. They doubled and tripled over a very short period of time. So the result was that to purchase oils, to purchase your grains, whatever it is you were purchasing, that with the basic things that you use, to produce the things that you and I buy in the supermarket became much, much more expensive. And the result was that the goods in the supermarkets themselves also became more expensive because the producers were suddenly having to pay these much higher prices and therefore they had to raise their prices. Right. Now, over a short period of time, it didn't take that many months until everybody realized that like Shakespeare said, it's much ado about nothing. Right. And the prices fell down, fell back down, the commodity prices fell back down to where they were before this all started. And the prices throughout the markets in the supermarkets went down for the most part also because competition forced it down. But in Israel, the problem is that we're a small, isolated country and we don't have very many producers in many different types of goods. And we also protect our goods inside of Israel. No, we protect Israeli producers. And the result was that you only had a little bit of competition inside the market. Now, if you and I are competing and that's, it's just you and I, then I don't want to lower my price. Something external pushed my price up. This isn't collusion. It's not what we decided to raise the price, but something external pushed our price up. And as a result of that, both you and I are making a lot more money. Now, I don't want to lower my prices. You don't want to go lower your prices. I'm not going to talk to you, but I'm going to be watching what you do. And if you don't lower your prices, I'm not going to lower my prices. Now, if there's lots of competition, that's not going to stop it. Prices are going to go down. But there was only a limited amount of competition and the competition isn't coming from internally or externally because you're protecting local producers. Prices are going to be stayed high. As long as we're up here, the view is great. Let's just stick around up there. Exactly, exactly. And you're talking, when we talk specifically, we're talking about milk, we're talking about bread, we're talking about canned goods, we're talking about all of the sort of staples that make up a big part of people's gen general shopping. That's right. And the interesting thing is when you take a look at where it happened, did it happen at the producer level or did it happen at the supermarket level? The answer is it happened at the producer level. Right. The supermarkets uh, profit margins did not go up, but the producer level markets went out uh, up margin. Which is interesting because there, there is quite a bit of competition amongst supermarkets. You've seen chains rise and fall. There, there, there is quite a lot of dynamism there, but then you take a step back and you see very little. And there still is, of course. But that was okay. The supermarkets didn't increase their margins. Yeah. But, uh, but you do have in Israel, of course, a very large player, much larger than any of the others. Supersol is a huge player in Israel. And therefore, you might have expected there to be an increase there also, but that's not what happened. 
mentioned the fact that we're an insular country and that we protect our producers. So just let's talk a little bit about that. How is it that, that this country and food, food, foods, for example, are generally quite exploitable and importable? Why is it we're in this position? To some extent, there is, of course, the issue of kosher food, uh, but that does not have much of an effect on most categories. It's just a question of protectionist policies. It's a question of where the country came from, and we have very much a socialist background inside of the country. And the types of protections that, that, that we made are because there's a lot of pressure to keep employment high in those places and to keep, keep it going happily. This has to do a lot with, with labor unions, and it has a very big effect. But I can tell you the story when it wasn't that way in, in, a, in a different industry inside of Israel, going back to 1990, if you want to hear about that one. And it's really important because it, it shows you what the potential is. So in 1990, there was a very strong uh, protection of producers of clothing and shoes and furniture inside of Israel. And the protection was in a way that they had very small quotas. The amount you were allowed to import into Israel was very small. And the government decided to do away with the quotas and to do away with the protectionism. And what they did was as follows. They took off the quotas and they created tariffs instead. Now, the tariffs were very high, but they were basically gave the same level of protection as the quotas had given originally. But they told the producers that you have six years. Over the next year, six years, we're going to be lowering the tariff every year until we go all the way down. And this is your period to get yourselves used to a new surrounding. Some companies went out of business. Some companies moved their production out. Some companies became, became much, much more efficient. But whatever happened to you, and of course, there were workers who suffered from it, no question about it. Whatever happened since that time until now, prices in those industries have been falling and productivity has been going up. So it had the types of effects that you need. And those are the same types of effects that you need in the food industry. Right. So we've talked about food quite a bit. Is that the only source of the high cost of living in Israel? It's not, right? No, of course not. The thing you always have to talk about in Israel is housing prices. Which is, of course, we talked about last time on the podcast. If anybody that's interested in a long discussion of that, have a look at the podcast we did with Avi back then. But go on, where are we now on that? Housing prices are obviously very, purchasing prices in, in, in particular, very high in Israel. But it's really got to be understood that this basically happens because of a simple supply and demand thing. This is not the competition issue anymore. This is not talking about imports. It's a little bit hard to import houses. But, uh, but it's a question of supply and demand. The population in Israel grows at about 2% a year. Now, growing at about 2% a year, the supply has to keep up with that. It's not keeping up with it. Not only that, what but- is, what, what, what's it, How much is the supply growing on an annual basis? It doesn't necessarily grow. It has grown in the last year. It looks like the, the building starts have, have, have grown this past year. I don't actually know the, the real number. Okay. But it looks like there had been a, been a significant increase now, lately. But it hadn't been growing very much. It had not been keeping up with what was needed. The number of new apartments created is not as much as the number of new families that are being formed that need housing solutions. And, and the other part is, of course, housing is a very good investment for many people, especially now with so many other investments looking terrible. Anybody who's invested in the market now knows that it may not be the best time to be there. Well, housing in Israel has had a fairly long history of prices going up, not super long. Again, that 2007, 2008, that's when housing prices in Israel started going up. From 95 until 2007, housing prices in Israel were falling and not increasing. Right. 
in absolute terms or in no, it fails congested terms in real terms. So they were going up; they just weren't going up as much as inflation. I don't remember in absolute terms whether it was going down also because that right. always less interesting to me. The real terms are what's important. But even now, and, you know, and, but then was the supply demand balance then radically different? You know, was there enough? There was just simply enough supply. There was. And in fact, 1990s, the early 1990s was the large Aliyah from, from former Soviet. Sure. And that, of course, required a lot of housing because you imported 20% more of the population than you had before that. Over a very short period of time. Yeah, there were four and a half million people in Israel and you brought in another million people. That's huge. That's basically unprecedented. And what the government did was they gave very big bonuses to builders who would build uh, apartments. And at the time, if I remember the numbers correctly, it was something like 30,000 shekel per apartment that you finished before a certain period. A bonus above and beyond everything else that you got. And that was a very significant sum at that time. Housing prices, of course, now are completely different uh, levels, but that was a very significant bonus. And a lot of housing uh, was completed. But in addition, you didn't have as many people buying it as an investment. And therefore, you you, you didn't have that increase. And the housing supply was keeping up with the housing demand at that time. On the supply-demand thing and investment, that's part of the fact that we've got significant excess savings here in Israel, which needs to then be plowed into something. But when you think about housing, people can rent, they don't have to buy. So when somebody invests, it doesn't necessarily pull a housing unit out of the market. It just means that it's going to be used differently. But there is somewhat of a disconnect between the housing purchase price and the rental price, where usually you'd expect them to be very closely linked. Well, with interest rates as low as they are, that link has become weakened. When people are purchasing it for speculative reasons, then that link breaks a little bit. And that's a lot of what's been happening here. Okay. So now that we've talked a little bit about inflation and interest rates, inflation obviously is part of this whole story. It's reached about 4% in Israel, which is high for historically for Israel, but not high by comparison to the, the numbers we're seeing. Sorry. In the recent history, you know, you're shaking your head. No, I'm high for Israel. I wasn't here in the 80s. I'm sorry. I'm just, I am young. <laughs> um, but you know, we're not at the US levels. We've gotten used to very low rates over the last decade plus. What is the Bank of Israel? What is the government doing in the face of what's going on globally and what's going on here? So you're absolutely right. I was shaking my head because <laughs> when you said starkly, that was... I, I realized my mistake just by the look at your eyes. <laughs> but yeah, look, prices in Israel. Okay, so the Bank of Israel sets a range of 1% to 3%, okay, a year. And we basically... Tar- target inflation. A target inflation. And we basically undershot that since about 2014 or so. Israel, Israelis have gotten used to a, a life without inflation. That wasn't the case back earlier. The inflation was very high, even after we were at 500% inflation in 1984. And Paris plant came in and it was cut down drastically. It was cut down to 20% for a long time, and it took a while to get below 20%. So those were very different days than they are now. And that's why everything's, in this, many things in it are still linked to inflation. Yes. That comes from that history, because you had to link it to inflation. People who took loans for apartments in the 1970s ended up basically not having to pay back anything for what they purchased, because basically it wasn't linked. It wasn't worth anything anymore. You might as well not even bother paying it back. It just wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. So things have changed a lot, but we've gotten used to a situation with undershooting the Bank of Israel's target range. And therefore, having inflation of 4% in one year, that doesn't really excite me that much. Because on average, we're still talking about 
a very low rate of inflation over the past decade. We're well in or possibly even still below the, the, the target range of the Bank of Israel. So we had 3.1% in 2021. Right now, we're talking about the last year, about 4.1%. But now, if you take a look forward at what's expected to happen to prices, it's not expect, they're not expected to go up a lot more than that. You're expecting that, that it might hit about 4.5% in the next few months. And then by next year, it's going to be back down into that 1% to 3% range. So that's what the expectation, that's what the market is expecting right now. Of course, no, exactly. But that's what, uh, what we're expecting. So uh, in a situation where prices are going up so much internationally, they're going up only 4% in Israel, it just doesn't excite me as much as it, as it does other people. Okay. So from your perspective, the inflation story here is not a major story, but we still have the cost that the sort of hangover from that cost of living bump that happened 15 years ago, which has really never been alleviated. What is government doing about that? And maybe what should government be doing about that? Yeah, so the answer brings you straight back to that story about the 1990s. It brings you back to the story of you need to increase competition. That the reason that the prices are high is because competition is just not sufficient. And if you can't get the competition from inside, you need to get that competition from outside. And that means removing barriers, lowering tariffs, making it easier for firms and standards, making, accepting international standards and not putting that additional cost of Israeli standardization when, when it's not necessary. These are the types of things that can lead to the ability to import for lower prices. And that could have a huge effect on, on consumers. The outgoing government, the Bennett-Lapid government, did put in place some changes. Yeah. How effective are they, do you think they're going to be? Oh, I think if they are continued, if they're not wiped out or anything along those lines, I think that they could be, they have the potential to be very effective, especially things like in agriculture and places like that. If you lower those tariffs, Israeli consumers will be paying less for their goods. And that's basically what you're looking for. And then for the many, I understand completely the concerns about, about farmers and what to do about, about that situation. And I think I, we discussed this last time, it's much more cost-effective to assist the farmers directly, give them direct subsidies, but let consumers pay lower prices. We complain about high prices, but we also want to protect our producers. Those don't go hand in hand. You're going to do one, you're not going to get the other. So the way to get that, to get both of them, is to give a different type of protection to the local producers. Give them a subsidy. Say whatever price you get in the market. Plus and the reason... And I'm guessing the reason that that's more effective is because you don't end up with the multiplier effect on the price. It, it's something known as the deadweight loss uh, uh, effect, mm-hmm. that when you have lower prices, people are going to be consuming, buying more, and they're buying it for a lot cheaper. And right now, because the prices are higher, they're buying a lot less. They're buying it for more expensive. And, and it's, it's something called deadweight loss that that decrease in the quantity has an effect on people's well-being. Right. So we'll all be buying more strawberries and more carrots and what have you. And they'll be getting them for a lot cheaper. And you're helping the entire population. You're helping the weaker populations also, which is something we're always very concerned about. Right. And, and on the housing front, to, in terms of policy? It, it, it's not going to go away without increasing supply. And is the government getting some of its act together around things like city tax, which we've talked about last time as being too low? Any changes on those fronts in the last 12 months? There, there certainly are changes in, with respect to trying to make it simpler to get your housing through, to get it moving. 
it just takes you, too you long. mean to get per permits and get permits it just takes too long from when you start the process until you finish the process and there are movements trying to change that there have been for a long time movements trying to change that and we'll just have to see how successful it is okay very good one last question going back to where we started with respect to the shekel the shekel was very strong 2.1 there seems to be a reasonable correlation between international financial markets and the nasdaq the s p and the strength of the shekel we're going through this sort of period where financial markets are having a difficult time. Do you see the other side of this, that the shekel goes back towards where it was around the three mark? Or I'm not asking for a specific prediction, but just if you look at the fundamentals of the economy, what does it mean for the shekel? First of all, I'm going to have to get out my eight ball uh, and take a look at it. <laughs> because we just don't know what's going to happen to the shekel. It, it will depend to some extent on how much the Bank of Israel uh, raises interest rates relative to how much the U.S. raises interest rates, because that can have a very large effect on the relative uh, value of the dollar and the relative value of the shekel. So until we know how that's going to play itself out, it's going to be really hard to predict. It could go up a little bit more. I don't think the Bank of Israel will allow it to go up to the area of four again. I just don't see them doing that. But on the other hand, it really wasn't that good for Israel to be about 3.1. So I think the, the current rate may be a reasonable rate given what's going on, but I'm very poor at predicting and things like that. Oh, well, I, try, I tried to pin you on a number, but you, you managed to get out of that very elegantly. I did. So. All right. That, that was terrific. Really appreciate your insight as always. And for those of you who want to read more of the Talbot Center's really incredible uh, material, you can go onto their website. Uh, Avi, would just remind us what the website is? Taub Center, T-A-U-B Center, the American spelling, C-D-N-T-E-R, dot O-R-G dot I-L. Okay. And, and really fantastic analysis on various elements of the Israeli uh, economy and society. Avi, thank you very much. Thank you, Darren. Always a pleasure. And thank you for all of our listeners and look out for more podcasts coming your way soon. Bye, everybody. 